The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. All right, so you're all excited? This is your big show? (laughs) I know it's a sex pod show. (laughs) You've been waiting for this for four seasons. I have. Every other episode, you seem to hook it all back to sex pods. So now we're actually going to do a whole show on the topic. And of course, you can't do it. Without the martini. That's right. I do have my vodka on ice. I'm ready to go. We're ready to go. Yes, we are liquored up, and we're going to talk about sex robots. Let's go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Everything you wanted to know about sex bots, but were too creeped out to ask. We'll ask sex advice columnist Cynthia Loist if society will ever catch up to the technology. We'll look at the history of sex bots going as far back as the Gutenberg Press, and we'll even talk about sex toys dating back to the Paleolithic Age. In the 21st century, however, we have a bigger problem, and that is security. Do you really want your gadget to be hacked by some kid halfway around the world? No, no. And the uncanny valley. Will a sex bot ever be realistic enough to not creep us out? Um... No. <laughs> and now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So here's the problem with spending an episode talking exclusively about sex bots is it's just two middle-aged men, and that's really rather creepy. <laughs> it is. Uh, we want to look at this from, from a technological point of view. We want to look at it from a sociological point of view and an ethical point of view. Right, which is why Cynthia Loist is going to join us in on this conversation. She is a sex advice columnist, the creator of FindYourPleasure.com, a member of the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada, a graduate of the University of Michigan sex education program and co-host of The Social on CTV. Cynthia, good to have you with us. That was really long. That's a long... Well, (laughs) we had to establish your credibility on this particular topic. Don't you think we did a good job of that? I really appreciate that. We're getting a lot of flack. I'm getting a lot of flack from people who think that I'm a weirdo when it comes to this whole sex bot thing. My interest is purely one of a sociological ethical and technological nature. Sure, sure, sure. I don't need a sex bot. Okay. All right, Ben. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation then. Over at geeksandbeats.com, Vanessa Azoli had written up the history of sex bots. And she starts, of course, with the idea of pornography, uh, pointing out that it's a $97 billion a year industry. So there's certainly a lot of money behind it to help fuel uh, a sex bot in a big way. But then she dials it all the way back to the 1500s, 1524, you know, 80 years before the Gutenberg Press books of erotica, the stag films of the 50s to the porn of the 70s. And then we get into sort of this modern day technology of virtual reality and that thin edge of the wedge to actually getting your own full on sex bot in the form of teledildonics. It's interesting that you're taking the perspective or thinking about this from a history of pornography leading to sex dolls. I actually trace it back to sex toys or masturbatory aids, physical ones. I see that as a more direct correlation to where we've come to now, so to speak. 
so to speak. Okay, so with that in mind, teledildonics is sort of a natural sort of sex toy evolution into that. She writes uh, that um, the other person doesn't have to be a person. It can be an avatar from the user's favorite adult website. And that brings us actually full circle back to porn because Kiru has this technology. Have you seen this? The Opu for the ladies and the Svur for the gentlemen? No. Explain. I haven't seen it either. Okay, so, of course, it's two gadgets. Um, one of them is, uh, well, it's a most common rod that women would take advantage of. And for the men, well, it's a tube you put your penis in. And whatever the woman's action is, it's replicated for the man inside this tube. Now, th- this seems to me to be the, ac- the, the opposite, the antithesis of intimacy. Because you're not actually in the room with the person and you are basically interfacing with machine instead of a real human being. I don't know. I think you're looking at this through one lens. That is a possibility. But another lens is for like long distance couples or even couples who just happen to travel a lot or want to just try something different. This is a way to connect with machinery in a totally different way. So you've got somebody on the other end controlling the device. That is a sense of intimacy and control. And the person receiving whatever it is that they're putting out there feels intimately connected. I think anybody who's even had a great online sex chat with somebody doing sexting can say it can feel very you know it's it's fun it's out of the box it can feel very unique for a couple so i don't think it necessarily has to separate that sense of intimacy therein lies the rub this is still male centric as most pornography is whatever the woman does the man feels but whatever the man does the woman doesn't feel well in that particular case it sounds like but there is there are sex toys out there that do you can program in and a woman can put something on her and she can feel uh, the vibrations um, you know you don't you you know there are sex toys for women Michael don't you <laughs> well this is kind of the whole point isn't it is that pornography is generally uh, male centric and then you get a whole host of gadgets that are also male centric the woman is being largely left out of this well i think the thing is is that right now the domain of sex dolls and what will be the sex robot world for sure will start off being predominantly geared towards men that's just the history of anything sexual has been predominantly the history of the world actually let's be clear has been geared towards men but i think if you actually look at the history of women's masturbatory aids they actually potentially predate men so you think back to uh, dildos there's some evidence that in the Paleolithic era, that's where you first see the evidence of, you know, stone carvings that women would have used for self-pleasure. Seriously? Yes, of course. Anthropologists will talk about this, right? And that does predate. I mean, on the men's side, you could say that that um, in mythology, Pygmalion, one of the stories of Pygmalion, he carved a woman out of ivory and became so obsessed with this woman. He was, you know, feeding her and bathing her and adoring her that Aphrodite got so jealous that she ended up just creating a real woman out of her. To me, that's the first story of a sex robot. Okay, now we can segue into the whole sex robot thing. Okay. They're coming or they're actually here. Um, There are brothels that apparently are very, very popular with with men, and it won't be long before we'll be able to go to Amazon and order something up. Well, we all watched Westworld as well, right? You and everyone you know were built to gratify the desires of the people who pay to visit your world. Just don't forget, they're not real. My wife and I were sitting watching Westworld, and she looks at me, and I swear, God, swear to God, this is true. She says, "Would you do a robot?" And I go, "No." 
I, <laughs> yeah, well, that's because she was sitting beside you asking you the question. Well, if I asked you the question, would your answer be different? It, no, it wouldn't be. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm a little old-fashioned. <laughs> like, I, oh, okay. Well, well, let, let's get into this because True Companion is a company out of New Jersey. Back in 2010, at the Adult Entertainment Expo, unveiled five foot seven, 120 pound Roxy, and they were taking orders for the seven thousand dollar sex doll and they got four thousand pre-orders and they've spent a million bucks developing this technology somebody clearly is interested in this and perhaps the reason why you're not is you have a companion well okay this is true and i'll I'll give you that which leads me down this this rabbit hole of of ethics and morality in this whole thing so let's just assume that the the major clientele of sex bots is for people who want to engage in uh, consensual legal sort of sex. In other words, man woman, man man, woman woman, whatever it is. Uh, and and you have an adult there and an adult there or a representation thereof. Where do you draw the line when it comes to people who are into you know violent sex or you know um, strange humiliating sex? child sex, uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff comes up with this whole notion of sex bots. If you can have whatever robot you need, I mean, are you actually committing any kind of crime upon that robot? That's been around for a while. I mean, there, there's there been this customizable personality, I think around since around 2010, where you could create a robot. And I guess they're not super sophisticated, but they would have these archetypes. So one would be a little bit, I think she was called like Frigid Fanny or something like that. And she was somebody who would resist your advances. And then there would be somebody who was a little bit like, like Wild Sue or something like that. And that would be somebody who was much more interested. So they've already kind of pre-thought about these, these archetypes. And I agree with you. I think there is something potentially very disturbing um, that could unfold from this because we know we already have so many issues with consent in the world. And so there's the one line of thinking, which is that this will just further complicate things, that when you have maybe socially awkward dudes who aren't necessarily interacting with human women in the first place very well, going and taking advantage of these uh, these dolls in, in very specific ways, that they will end up trying to use that kind of... Um, same methodology with a real person. But then there's another line of thinking, which is that this is this this person is lonely. This person ha- may have social um, social anxieties. They may have physical disabilities that, that don't allow them to interact with people. So for those people, this could be a really incredible outlet and an extension of fantasy. Based upon everything that you've read in your research as well, uh, you know, Alan went down a really dark rabbit hole there with, you know, violent sex, child sex. Rape fantasy. These are important things to talk about, though, for sure. To that point. Do, do we know that someone who gets to um, release that pent-up fantasy in a f- manner that doesn't have a net negative impact on an actual human being act as a, a pressure release valve, or does it convince them that they can actually engage in these activities in the real world and put actual people at risk. We just don't know that yet. These are the discussions that are happening right now on a high level is because there have been dolls that have been made in uh, the form of a child. And there are there's questions of like, is this child pornography? And I believe in some cases it has been deemed child pornography and they aren't even allowed to be um, distributed. Um and these are the questions is, is this going to be an outlet for people who have um, sexual disorders um, or is this going to be reinforcing a behavior? And that ultimately, what we do know in porn is a lot of times certain mentalities go with upping the ante. You want 
you know, you like a little bit of, uh, how explicit can I be here? As explicit as it takes to tell the story. Let's just say you start off with somebody who likes to see a visual money shot, right? And then you go from there to the bukkake. Like, there's an escalation in pornography we've already seen. So I think it remains to be seen whether or not in the world of sex dolls or sex robots that things will escalate and then you know, triple trickle out into the real world. Well, isn't that part of the whole question we're having right now about certain more uh, certain sex acts that 5, 10, 15, 30 years ago would have been considered incredibly taboo or illegal or illegal uh, that are now quite commonplace in the top 10 videos on any given website. Do we find that porn leads our own uh, reptilian brain or is our reptilian brain leading porn? I think it's a bit of both, but I think it's an interesting question to ponder. I think we've seen more and more examples of things that started out in the world of porn seeping into the mainstream. And this goes back, you can talk about it in trends of body hair removal to um, the ways in which we actually do have sex with other people. There was a time not that long ago where nice women didn't perform oral sex on their husbands. Um, that just wasn't a thing that necessarily happened. It, it was just something French girls did. <laughs> or something to that effect. But nowadays, I think you would find it quite unique if you ran into somebody who said that that wasn't part of the repertoire of their, you know, buffet of sex. So I think we've seen many, many examples of how pornography has influenced. Um, and, you know, the question is, is how much is it coming from the fantasies of the viewers who are saying, I'd really like to see this? Certainly, that's been the case, I think, with the rise of women's interest in pornography. You know, years ago, women just weren't watching in the same amount. I mean, I think a lot of women were. But now there's entire industries that cater towards women. And so we've seen that whole industry change. You know, I'm a big fan of there's a feminist pornographer out there named Erica Lust. She did a TED talk in Vienna. I went from being a political science and gender studies graduate in Sweden to a feminist adult filmmaker in Barcelona. The last 15 years of my life have been an amazing trip, an amazing journey from feeling dirty and guilty for watching porn to creating the adult cinema that I want to watch. My first time was at a sleepover party with my best girlfriends. Popcorn, pajamas and... Porn. We expected to discover the mystery of sex, the forbidden fruit. Ah, we ended up laughing, we ended up giggling, we ended up feeling repulsion. Ah, the movie went back to the secret hiding place of my friend's father. Oh. She's just kind of revolutionized, I think, pornography that's geared towards women. And so were, was that an influence? Did women start watching more pornography because they knew it was out there? Or did they start watching it because they, uh, you know, they always wanted it and then suddenly found that they, they, they found the right type? So I, I think they hold hands together, this relationship between pornography and our actions. Is there such a thing as a sex robot? I think if they haven't made that yet, they are veering very close to it. Um, it was 
1998 that the real doll was made in LA and it's become like this huge industry obviously and then the robotic industry has maybe started around like 20 the 2010s um the male sex doll came quite a few years after the real doll and it was done by a German company oh you know the Germans they make good stuff (laughs) I don't think it was geared necessarily towards straight women I think it was probably geared towards gay men initially but I think that more and more women are open to the idea of something like this I certainly would try I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sitting here right now, and I would be lying to you if I said that if there was no stigma, and I was out with my girlfriends, and there was a place that looked like Westworld, and it was populated with a bunch of dudes who looked real and looked like men that I would find attractive, that I wouldn't be curious to try it out. I I would be very curious to try it out. Okay, wait. Let me ask you this. Yes. Is that cheating? Oh, come on. You think about it this way. Um, the vast majority of women have a more difficult time with orgasm than men. Um, This is the reason why sex toys are so uh, prolific in women's lives, that they often will use that. And that is a disembodied... I mean, not all sex toys look like the male anatomy, but in many cases, that's a disembodied part of the male anatomy. And some women really prefer them to look a lot like the male anatomy. So if you add on the rest of the body to that, to me, it's just, again, it's more fantasy fodder. Is it cheating if the guy actually knows about you and learns about you and understands you? I mean, those are questions that we are going to have to look at down the road, or is it going to be just part of uh, role play? Or are you going to be incorporating your partner with you? Is it kind of an extension of a threesome, uh, a safer threesome uh, than involving another person? I can just imagine somebody coming home, opening the closet and going, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that actually brings up a, a bizarre and unexpected logistical issue associated with having a full body sex bot. Where are you going to keep the thing? And where are you going to keep the thing that doesn't creep out the house guests when you have a party? Or the kids or the dogs. There'll be stories. You get those trundle beds. Aren't they called the trundle beds? Right. You just roll it out from underneath. Okay. Yeah, totally. I think you need to do that. How likely, though, is it that we're going to get a Westworld kind of thing in our realistic lifetimes? There's this thing called the uncanny value. Are you familiar with this? Um, Just from notes you sent to me. Okay. The uncanny valley is essentially you could plot on a graph um, how much an individual positively reacts to an image of another human being. And the more realistic that other human being gets, the more we appreciate it, the more we are attracted to it. We're empathetic and, and positive about it until you hit a certain point where it goes from being kind of human-like to being just not quite there yet, and it plunges the graph of acceptance and empathy for it because our brains go, hey, that's that's a human. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's not. Wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? Like, have you seen some of these Japanese sex bots? Uh, yeah, and some of them look really awkward and strange. I, I mean... The thing is, is it's still better than I think for some people it will feel more closer to being realistic than um, their hand or than, you know, like it's or than just being a passive observer to pornography. It still feels closer to I mean, for some people, they'll never get be able to get past that. For other people, you'll find that there'll be a whole new fetish of people who are fetishized robots like that. I'm sure I mean, that already exists, but. Yeah. That'll be a it'll be a thing that people will enjoy because it's sort of like awkward and stilted. Okay, so then would you find yourself at the world's first sex doll brothel in Barcelona, Alan? No. Absolutely no. I, I'm I would be curious from a ethical, moral, sociological point of view, but 
you know, I kind of I'm the kind of guy who worries about goes into a restaurant and worries about where those utensils have been before <laughs> I use them. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah, I, I guess there is a log- another logistical issue aside from storage. Uh, it's, um, well, maintenance. Yes. Whose job is that going to be? Oh. 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 Cynthia, thank you for oh, joining us, I think. God, now I'm not going to sleep. Oh, God, I'm going to dream that I'm one of those sex janitors. Cynthia Lois, creator of FindYourPleasure.com and co-host of The Social on CTV. Oh. Stay up to date on the latest in music, tech, and pop culture by going to geeksandbeats.com anytime. And for super happy, fun, joy, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. issues of course associated with sex bots is the security inherent in that advanced technology over at geeksandbeats.com vasem um yuck yeah yeah we got to learn how to pronounce his name it is a him right it is okay Vasem Yanovkian. Pointing out that um, you don't necessarily want to be exposed to the sex bot because the sex bot may expose you. There is big concern about the security and the internet connection that a sex bot may very well have. Okay, now let me just back up a little bit. I have two Roombas in my house. I have one for the main floor, one for my office in the basement. Roomba is apparently collecting material collecting data and information on the layout of my house. They claim they're not going to be selling it, so help them God. Uh, Well, fine, but I've got these things that look like hordas from the original Star Trek crawling around my house. They know exactly the square footage of my main floor and my basement. And one of them is is, is Wi-Fi enabled, so it it has the capability of sending information back to the mothership. Mm -hmm. So, all right, fine. Um, I'm reasonably okay with that if it helps. You know, I love my Roombas. I think they're fantastic. But uh, if it's a sex doll that's phoning home with data about owner usage... Then it's a bit weird. Well, there's also a company out there that makes a vibrator for women that has a camera on the end of it. What? A camera? Yeah, a camera. So that uh, your uh, man, uh, long-distance lover kind of thing, can see what's going on in an intimate fashion that one could never before. Well, like a gynecologist? And we have learned that that is hackable and that that was a a huge concern, let alone the whole practice of data mining of, to your point, um, knowing exactly uh, when you are engaging in this kind of activity, uh, how long you're engaging in it, and, well, the setting on the device. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the porn sites do that. I mean, Pornhub every once in a while releases statistics on, on usage. Yeah, but that's a little more anonymous. We're talking about somebody having the ability to hack into your device. Oh, God. And what, what would they make the device do? 
Well, if it was a sex bot, could you imagine the potential? Well, I saw I saw Westworld. I know what can happen. Freeze all motor functions. Freeze all motor functions. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. David McKittrick is still the co producer of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. You know, I was thinking about David uh, over the weekend, and I thought that we really need to come up with some sort of graduated level of co-producers, because there are co-producers that come in for one show, but then we have these super co-producers that do it again and again and again. And I think we should create this new level of acknowledgement for these guys. What David may not have done is something that through Patreon, which is the way we siphon cash out of your wallet, Patreon has the ability to set a limit, a, a, a grand dollar total of how much you're willing to contribute to the big show on a per episode basis. He has set it to zero. So every week, every time we publish, uh, we ding his visa card for 25 bucks. So David, thank you very much for being a long-term supporter of the show. Our only concern is that maybe you didn't set up that lifetime limit. It is all part of the world's worst intern program. And what makes it the world's worst is you pay us a dollar to work on the show. You don't do any actual work. And all we do is thank you for contributing uh, financially to the big show. And it's just a dollar. But you can be a a contributor in a much bigger way. Set it to any amount you want. Mike Benninger, Dave Duva. uh, Dave Duva, for example, set it to $4. Paul Seal set it to a dollar. But a lifetime limit of $31.06. Sixty-eight cents. That's an odd number. Why? why? <laughs> I have why? no idea. We're not getting that last sixty-eight cents from Paul. Walter McVeigh, Chris Potter, Grant Ridge set a one hundred twenty-five dollar limit, so that's one hundred and twenty-five episodes he's helping us out with. Mike Tweedy, forty-seven episodes. Why forty-seven dollars? That's just no. It's an unusual number, isn't it? Maybe right. it's just so that we talk about it. What episode is this? This is episode... 138. Okay, so... And so he's been with us for a couple of weeks, so we've got him through at least the full season. All right, I'm going to throw this out there. If anybody wants to, 138. So next episode is 139. So $13.90. Huh, well, that? no, you can't do the 90, because we'll never get the 90 cents. Why, why not? Well, because if it's at a dollar increment... Oh, right, okay. Uh, no, no, but what, uh, one-time, a one-time donation, $13.90. Okay, fine by me. All right, let's see if it, anybody, you know, bites. We also want to thank Jano Sapataki for his $5 an episode contribution as well. Over at geeksandbeats.com, we got uh, a caller who called 323-319-NERD to ask if we would be up for adding to the swag store an autographed photo of you and me. Really? Yeah. I guess we could do that. Why? I don't know. Um, Why would anyone want a picture of us? Do you know a photographer? I mean, we could get a nice, you know, nice pose picture of the two of us. Oh, how romantic. You know, we, we could probably use some kind of promo pics. Next week, artificial intelligence to make the perfect playlist. Yeah, this kind of scares me because I used to spend many, many, many hours in nightclubs coming up with the perfect music mixes for the people on the dance floor. Now, robots. <sighs> DJs could be made obsolete and irrelevant because of algorithms. Robots. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats 
Geeks Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. Robots!